Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So have you ever done something in your life that you wish you could take back? Nobody here, right? And you don't know how to take it back. You wish you could go back in time, but maybe it was something that happened on a spring break. No? Or maybe it was a moment when a temper flared and words you used completely ruined a relationship and you don't know how to take it back and you messed it up and you regret it. A failure is not a topic that I love, that we love to talk about. None of us like to talk about it. Anybody here like to talk about failure? Anybody? No? But failure is a topic that's universal. There's not a single one of us who hasn't failed at something big or little, and most of us could name something big in our life. Maybe you're thinking, is this really uh, like a really great topic for Easter? Yeah, it is. Because it gets to the very heart of what we celebrate today. We'll focus on one of the most moving post-resurrection interactions that Jesus had with his followers that help us really look at God's love maybe differently or more fully and failure differently. So when you think of failure in your own life, what thoughts or what feelings come to mind when you think of those moments you have failed big? Especially when you failed someone you loved. When you think about it, maybe your stomach becomes uneasy, right? We've got all sorts of feelings, all sorts of thoughts. One of my cringe moments in my life was when we were moving into a new home days before our first child was born. Lots was going on. I had a rental truck and some friends helped me unload it into a new house, and it was a really long, hot, hot summer night in Oklahoma. And I had to get the truck back. And I had to get a truck before they closed. And I just left Wendy, Wendy at the new house telling her I'd be back. I didn't tell her how long I was going to be gone. I didn't check to see if anyone else was staying with her. I didn't remember she was in a house that didn't have electricity hooked up yet, so there was no lights and no air conditioning, and we didn't have cell phones, and the phone wasn't hooked up, so she couldn't call anybody yet. She also didn't have a car, and she also had never met any of the neighbors, and she was nine months pregnant, all alone after spending the entire day moving boxes all day, and she was beginning to have labor contractions. Yeah. First time child, first time, you know. To my credit, I assumed one of our close friends, actually one of the ladies who was supposed to be in the labor room with us as a, as a friend coach was there. I figured they'd stay with her, but nonetheless, she left was left alone with contractions. And returning the truck, instead of taking it 30 minutes like I thought, it took over two hours because they were really not efficient. Even though it was a really hot night, when I got home, it was a little frosty. <laughs> so just to clarify, just so you really know, I did not earn Husband of the Year or Father of the Year award that year. Gratefully... The contraction stopped that night, and she talked to me again, again before our son was born a few days later. <laughs> when you fail someone you love, you realize there's this gap between who you want to be and uh, who you are and who you want to be. And how you deal with that gap, how we deal with failure, is one of the greatest barriers or hindrances to our spiritual growth or it can bless our spiritual growth if we deal with it well. Almost more than anything else in life, 
How you treat failure will determine how you grow as a person and as a follower of Jesus. So today we delve into a post-resurrection meal Jesus has with one of those people who failed him miserably. So by this time when we get to the story that we're focused on today, Jesus had died, he was buried, the disciples have seen Jesus risen and alive at least twice, maybe more, and they've been shocked and amazed because Jesus came through walls into rooms that were locked and they don't know when he will show up again, but he's told them to wait and in their waiting and uncertainty, some of them decide to go back to what they're used to in life and that was fishing. Some of them were fishermen before. Peter and some of the other disciples stay out all night fishing and they catch Nothing. And many of us know Peter's story. Peter had several failures in his life, one of the most gut-wrenching, awful ones we're going to look at in a moment. If there was ever someone who had failed someone they loved, it was Peter. And if you've ever been there, I think you can relate to Peter. We're going to actually take a minute to watch, a couple of minutes to watch a reenactment that helps us imagine being Peter and helps us get in touch with the feelings that he would feel and maybe even some of our feelings and understand our own failure a little better. Just turn your attention to the screens. They say a rooster crowing is God's wake-up call. Yeah, that's, uh, at least that's the way it was for me. Everything, that, that whole night was a blur, all right? Um, I didn't comprehend, none of us could comprehend everything that was going on, all right? We were all in the upper room, Jesus was washing our feet. Um, then we were in the garden, Jesus goes off to pray by himself. I fell asleep, I'm not proud of it. I had a big meal, bread makes me sleepy. Next thing we know, me, James, and John, Jesus is in our face, and he's trying to wake us up, and uh, he said, um, he said, uh, the, the, uh, the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. And, and then before we know it, Judas is kissing Jesus on the cheek. I try to go help him. I cut off this guard's ear. For the record, I wasn't aiming for his ear. I'm a fisherman, not a swordsman. And then they, uh, they arrest Jesus and they take him off. And we, we ran. And it wasn't but two hours earlier that we were in the upper room. I was looking at him. I was looking him right in the eye saying, if everyone disowns you, Jesus, I won't. I'm with you. I love you. And I think that's what made me stop, turn around, go back. And uh, I caught a glimpse of Jesus as they were taking him to the high priest's house. Stood at the gate, and some girl comes up to me, starts pointing at me, starts going, You, you're with him. You're with this man that claims to be the Son of God. You're one of his disciples. I felt like every eye was on me. So I just brushed her off. I said, You don't know what you're talking about. You got the wrong guy. I get my way into the courtyard, and uh, it's cold. I, I try to warm up by the fire. And then there's this guy that recognizes me, and he is uh, from the ear incident, you know, and starts going, get him, get him, he's with him, just arrest him, get him. And I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about, all right? I wasn't with him. It was easier the second time to deny him. 
sometime right before morning, and um, this wise guy, he comes up to me and goes, who are you kidding, all right? Who are you fooling? You're with him. I can tell by your accent. I'm like, this is just the way I talk, all right? And, and the whole night, they kept pushing him around. They kept beating him. They kept spitting on him, throwing insults at him, and I couldn't take it anymore. I had enough. I was tired of people accusing me, looking at me, and I, and I just I said a few things that I'm not proud of, but I was like, leave him alone. You don't know what you're doing, all right? Just leave him alone. I wasn't with him. And that's when I heard the most blood-curdling sound I ever heard in my whole life. I heard that rooster crow. And at that moment, Jesus, he turns around and he looks at me. He looks at me. And his gaze, you can't escape his gaze. I mean, when his eyes are on you, you cannot escape it. And they arrested him and they took him off. I will die with you, Jesus. As everyone, if everybody disowns you, I will die with you. What a, what a joke. I mean, what would you do? At that moment, at that time, I ran. I ran so fast. I ran so long. And you know what they did? They killed him. He's dead. Ever adamantly made a promise that you didn't keep? Peter was so adamantly committed to laying down his life for Jesus only to miserably fail. He's in a bad place knowing who he had hoped to be and who he really was. He could not bridge the gap between who he was and who he wanted to be. Peter had seen Jesus resurrected by the time we pick up the story, but there had been no resolution yet to this point of how Peter had betrayed Jesus. So let's see how Jesus looks at Peter amid his failure. Text says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were able to haul and not able to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. The disciples didn't realize it was Jesus yet. But this encounter is so reminiscent of a time when they first got to know Jesus several years back. Just like back then, Peter and some of the others had been out all night trying to catch fish and no success. And Jesus calls out back then three years earlier in that similar time. He said, friends, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And they made a huge haul of fish so big they couldn't lift the nets. And so now when it happens again... All of a sudden, they're reminded of this first miraculous text, a uh, fish catch. And the text goes on, and it says, Then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, Don't you love this? John's writing this. He's the disciple Jesus loves. Don't you want that for your identity? Said to Peter, It is the Lord. 
As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. And I love Peter's reckless abandon, don't you, in his heart to just jump and go. Text goes on and says, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals and there with fish on it and some bread. So think about this. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. Imagine the emotions you would be experiencing all throughout this time, having been, especially now after having been up all night fishing and all the uncertainty that Jesus had risen but not knowing what's coming next, emotionally and physically exhausted, and you find Jesus, the Son of a God, on the beach grilling fish and warming bread for you. What kind of God comes back from conquering death and makes breakfast for the guys who were failures, who had all deserted him? The text goes on and says, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153, but even with so many, the net had not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. So we're just going to focus on two main points out of this text today. The first main point is just real briefly, it's, I mean, the power of God in this is just so cool. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. The disciples were experienced fishermen. They weren't fools. They knew that this catch wasn't just sort of some sort of lucky break. It was a miracle. It was a, a sign of the supreme authority and control Jesus has over nature itself. Even the fish go where God tells them. And we see Jesus along with that no longer bound by material and spatial limitations. He passes through a sealed tomb. He, he goes through a locked door. He walks through a wall. He just appears out of nowhere. And Jesus is the master over life and death and time and space and all of creation. And yet here he is, alive and grilling a few fish in the morning sunshine for some tired, hungry, wet, weary friends. He's meeting their ordinary needs in ordinary ways. I mean, talk about breathtaking tenderness that God has toward us. And we're going to spend the rest of our time on the second point, which is, this is there's a restoration work going on here that Jesus is all about. Jesus is making breakfast for a purpose for these people who failed him. The last time the Bible talks about Peter before this, Peter was also sitting by a fire, he mentioned it in the, in the thing, when he denied Jesus and denied knowing Jesus. Remember, it says in the text, and a certain servant girl, seeing him, Peter, as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. And as the story said, he went on to die, deny two more times for a total of three. And now again, in the moment we're at, Peter is sitting at a fire with Jesus. Can you imagine the cringe, the uneasy sense in Peter's stomach sitting there? It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. 
And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Most of us, when it comes to failure, we tend to withdraw. We get that terrible, awful feeling in our gut, and we do what we can to avoid it. We withdraw from ourselves. We try to distract ourselves. We withdraw and avoid others whom we think might remind us of our failures. And we withdraw from God thinking, God's frustrated. He's done with me and all my screw-ups. And yet what we see in this interaction is Jesus directly leading Peter to look at his failures in the eye. There's no minimization. Jesus doesn't say, hey, Peter, it's no big deal. Three times, Peter denies Jesus. And three times, Jesus lets Peter look at these failures, but not with condemnation and not with judgment. He's not communicating to him, I am so disappointed with you, I'm done with you. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus steps in, he bakes bread, and he prepares some fish to have breakfast, and he is about restoring the relationship. Three times, Jesus asks, do you love me? It says Peter was hurt when Jesus asked him for a third time. You can hear again the sadness in his voice that third time. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. I failed you miserably. But I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. Jesus is not trying to embarrass or belittle Peter. Jesus is actually showing him that Jesus' acceptance of him is not based on performance. It's based on Jesus' finished work on the cross as the one who is paid to take away his sins. Jesus is doing an image correction for who Peter thinks Jesus is. See, rather than pulling away, Jesus leans into Peter and his failure. And he wants to do the same thing with you and with me. In that moment, everything Peter thought disqualified him. Jesus came back to and said, nothing's changed. I rose again. I beat death. I beat your sin. I love you, Peter, and we are going to build this church together. It's not over. In fact, it's barely started. Remembering the first miraculous catch, I think, that we talked about earlier is really critical to see what Jesus is actually saying to Peter. Peter was the first, was first called by Jesus with that similar first catch. And when that happened, at the very end of it, the text says this, Jesus said to Simon Peter, don't be afraid, from now on you will fish for people. Jesus purposely sets up a second miracle catch of fish to reemphasize to Peter again how to walk through failures and to teach us how to walk through failures. Jesus moves toward Peter, who is led to match all, th all three denials with a threefold declar declaration of his love. 
which gets Peter back in right relationship with God and with a sense of purpose again. See, Jesus always steps into the gaps of who we are and who we want to be. And he points us to the better version of ourselves. What do you do when you fail? What do you do when you fail? Do you think that your past has put a death sentence on your future? Do you think God is done with you? The truth is, he is not done with you. He's not moving away from you or holding you at a distance. He's moving toward you in love. Just like Peter, we need to be very aware of how we view God amid our failures. We need to take sin seriously. Peter did. He wept bitterly at his betrayal and he was distressed over his sin. And yet God turned to him and restored hope. Do you tend to think that God is tired of you, tired of your mistakes, tired of your sin? Just look at Jesus on the cross. He didn't turn away from the cross. There's nothing that could have come between Jesus and him going to the cross that would have deterred him from doing that. I mean, literally all hell came at him, but Jesus still chose out of love to go to the cross. Why? Because he loves you. Because he wants to forgive you. That's why the Apostle Paul can say, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And the God's love will never, ever fail. And it's this understanding that is so critical for how we move past our failures and not allow failures to be the final thing that speaks in our life, but instead allow them to help us to grow. He meets our failure with a love that leans into us rather than pulls away. Because when you look at it, it's really love that inspires us to change more than regret ever can do or ever will do. What is it that propelled Peter to become the kind of disciple that he could be, the kind of disciple that would go on to change the face of the church? It's not his regret over his denial of Jesus. And yet, how often do you and I allow regret to be that motivator of change? In fact, we think that we have to regret, otherwise we won't change. See, Peter did not become the kind of person who would one day lay his life down for Jesus because he focused on the regret of his failure. No. It was Peter's focus on Jesus' love for him that kept strengthening him to become the kind of person he was meant to be. Think about the woman who was caught in adultery. This is another example. The crowd drags her, throwing her face down at the feet of Jesus, shaming her publicly, using her as a prop in their attempt to discredit Jesus and lay a trap for Jesus. They ask Jesus the question, should we stone her? Because they say, well, hey, Jesus, you know, the law says this woman deserves to be stoned to death. Are you going to agree with Moses or not? And they think they've set up a trap for Jesus. What do you think she's feeling there at his feet as she lies in the dirt? I mean, she's got to be thinking hopeless, desperate thoughts. No one's going to save me. I'm going to die right here 
in humiliation. And Jesus doesn't say anything to the priest's questions. Instead, he just kind of kneels down and starts lying in the dirt. He just allows the silence to hang there for a long time until the priests start questioning him. And he responds saying, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he lets it all just hang there. He stoops down, writes in the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with a woman standing there. And Jesus then straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, he declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is a story she would have told for the rest of her life. She may have wanted her failure to be erased and hidden, but she can't tell the fullness of her story and the fullness of how much God loves her without telling of the failure as well. Isn't that so like God? He's not the kind of author who just tries to edit and delete our stories. He's the one who redeems our stories. He makes our worst moments, our failures, become testimonies to his love and even turns them into victories. What causes her not to sin anymore? What gives her the strength to become the person she was meant to be? Is it the regret of her failings and nearly getting stoned? Or is it the love that Jesus showed to her in that moment? The kind of love that stepped between her and an angry mob. See, it's Jesus' love that fuels us to live differently. The deep longing of the human heart is to be loved, to be known completely and loved completely. And the reality is when we hide our failures and our sin from God, when we are reluctant to confess them, it just puts a barrier between us experiencing God's love. It puts a barrier between us experiencing the very thing that can prevent us from staying stuck in our sin. When we see Peter's life, is, through his life, we see that he got stronger and stronger as you read through the New Testament. But here's why it was necessary that Jesus went through this whole breakfast scenario with him and asked him all those questions. Because Jesus says to Peter, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. And when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And it says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. He was later crucified upside down. And then he said simply this, follow me. And that's the invitation to every single one of us. See, Jesus shapes a great failure into a great leader by helping him face his sin and his failure. I've had a tremendous joy to get to know uh, Buddy Edwards. Come on, Buddy. Uh, Buddy's going to come and tell us a little bit of his story because God has done just such an amazingly beautiful work in his life. In the spring of 2000, my daughter was a senior in high school. I was living in a small apartment 
away from my family. One benefit to this relationship, one, to this arrangement, was that my daughter and I had weekly dates. Ironically, we could live under the same roof and never connect. It took this separation for me to make intentional time with her. I did not know the Lord, but I was sure there was one. In fact, I'd learned to pray to God twice a day. In the morning, I would ask him to keep me sober. And in the evening, I would thank him for having done so. We were a broken lot. Generations of alcoholism had taken its toll. I was asleep in my apartment late one Saturday night when I was suddenly awakened to a powerful thought of instruction. What I heard in my head was, you must tell your daughter the trouble between her mother and me was not her fault. I love you unconditionally, and the reason I never told you was because I am emotionally insecure need to feel strong, and I grew up in an emotional wasteland, not feeling loved. I immediately went back to sleep, but I didn't forget the instruction and never questioned whether I would do it. The next day was Sunday, and we had a date that afternoon. I told Nicole what I had been instructed to say. She looked surprised, but didn't really comment. Tracy called me later that night and said, I don't know what you said to Nicole, but she's bouncing off the wall. Our family has been through a lot of healing, and it continues year after year. Nicole says, we talk about tough things. I can tell there's a, there's a whole lot more story there, isn't there? And it's so beautiful. I love how Buddy heard from the Holy Spirit to go talk to his daughter, and he just does it. And this is before he's even convinced about how God talks and all that kind of stuff. He's just, he just responds. God led Buddy to face a difficult thing, and then we see the profound effect it had, not only on himself, but on all those who loved. He loves So if you find yourself struggling with failure, here are some ways to walk this truth out. And the first one is to to look at this question. What picture of God do you have? How you think about God is hugely important. What picture of God do you have? Is he moving toward you? Or do you think he's moving away from you in your failure? Remember, this is Jesus who after the betrayal by his closest followers denying him is sitting here serving breakfast to them on the beach, encouraging them to be the better version of who they are and believing them still. A God who comes to you like that, well, that totally frees you to look at failure differently, doesn't it? 
What are the failures and inadequacies in your life that stand out? What are the things that keep coming up for you that keep condemning you in your mind and holding you back? Where do you find yourself quitting or or, or not even being willing to try again because you don't want to risk failing again? Take some time. Write those things down. Talk with God about it. Invite him to show you how he's coming to you with love in the midst of those things that you write down. See, failure is never final. God has the ability and the loving desire to take your failures and bring powerful growth and redemption. From those places of failure, maybe you want to let this be your favorite verse. It's where it says he was talking to them. And remember, all these people he's talking to are the ones that have betrayed him and abandoned him and rejected him and denied him. And Jesus says to them, come on and have breakfast. I mean, that's an image you can hold on to. He's inviting you to breakfast on a beach. Maybe some of you are here listening online and you just... You're seeking out faith. You're not sure. You're hoping there's a God who is personal and real. There is. And he wants to come to you. And he wants you to seek him. And he says if you seek him, you will find him. If you are ready and convinced that Jesus is God, you can accept his forgiveness today, right now, right where you're at, by just accepting it and committing your life to him. Just pray those two thoughts in your own words. The first thought is, God, forgive me. I know I need your help. And I want to commit my life to following you as the leader of my life. And then I want to encourage you to come to me or come to someone you know who's a follower and just tell them, because you, you can't walk this life alone. You need people to encourage you. If you're listening online, email me. I'd love to connect with you and talk with you and see how we can encourage you. See, Jesus sees who you are. He loves you. And he sticks around anyway. Because the Jesus kind of love leans in. He's always, always, always leaning into you. Jesus did that with Peter, and it began a whole new relationship between between Peter and Jesus, and it can begin a whole new relationship with you and God, too. Would you just join me for a minute in prayer? Holy Spirit, we thank you that your presence is so abundantly here. And Lord, I ask that there would be no one here today or listening online who would walk away from this not sensing your love coming to them that you would come and touch every single person here. And Lord, would you help us change our picture of you so that we see you inviting us to breakfast. We see you coming to us. We see you restoring us because that's who you are. So I pray that everybody here would experience that. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.